If you have a Bible with you, would you turn to that Bible, to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 13. We are going to conclude our study of chapter 13 this week, um, examining uh, verses 44 to 52, as is our uh, normal uh, mode here. We will pray uh, first. We will then read the text under consideration. Then we'll unfold the passage, making applications as we go through it. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we are drawn here this morning to hear the word of God. We need grace to illuminate the passage to our minds for understanding, grace to inflame our hearts in love for you and for your people, grace to engage our will to repentance, obedience, and faith. We pray for our fellow brothers and sisters who have gathered this morning at Wapato Valley. May your grace abound in the preaching of the word and in the ears of the congregation there and here as well. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of the infallible, inerrant, Holy Spirit, written word of God, beginning in Acts chapter 13 in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. You may be seated. This message will be partly going through the passage, and partly uh, this morning it will be a, a little bit of theology or a little uh, teaching on, on the doctrine of grace. Sometimes we misunderstand grace. I think we think of grace often. I was thinking about this yesterday. Often when we hear the word grace, we mean like passivity. We mean like we mistake grace for kindness or for softness or for tolerance or whatever it might be. But grace is the power of God in salvation. God is sovereign in all of salvation. It is by grace that one is saved, which means that it is a work of God alone. When you say I'm saved by grace, you're actually declaring this, that it is a work of God alone. 
it is monergistic. That is, that it's not a synergy of effort. It's not that God does one part and we do another. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is of His own will that one is saved. The uh, Westminster Divines summarized the teaching of Holy Scripture concerning God's sovereignty in chapter 3, article 1, and it says this. And by the way, it's not just the Presbyterians of the Westminster type confession. It is also Baptists who would agree the statement is almost exactly word for word the same as they understand the teachings of Holy Scripture concerning God's sovereignty. It says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as God is neither the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but actually by them, they are rather established. See, God has ordained the full measure of all who have, are, and will be saved. God has ordained it by the wise and holy counsel of his own will, not contingent on any other cause. Salvation is not contingent on anything outside of God. So, th so think that through. It's not contingent on anything outside of him. If salvation was contingent on something else, some other sort of conditions that had to be met, right? Then it is not the power of God that saves. If he's contingent on something else, then God is acted upon in order to save us. God is not acted upon. It is an act of God, an act of his free will, an act of his goodness, his grace, his mercy, and his kindness to save even one soul. Because when I ask this question, who is worthy? Who is worthy? Who sits in this room in their own self? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? The answer is John Roberts should say, it's not me. Tyler would say, it's not me. I would say, it is not me who is worthy. How is one counted worthy of this great salvation? Well, we unfold this. It is by the will of God. In Ephesians 1, says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to Himself. According to this, according to what? To the good pleasure of His will to the praise and glory of His grace with which He favored us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our wrongdoings according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight He made known to us. See, it's God acting, right? He made known to us the mystery of His will. According to what? The rest of the passage says, according to His good pleasure. 
which He set forth in Him, in Christ, regarding His plan of the fullness of times to bring all things together in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him we have also obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things in accordance with the plan of His will. To that end, we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. The people of God are sovereignly determined. Anyone and everyone who will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ are those who God, by God's predetermined wise self-counsel has bestowed grace upon them. The major questions that we will answer this morning are this. Who is worthy of eternal life? Who determines a person's worthiness? And then, this is a big question, how is an unworthy person made worthy? What is the human responsibility in light of the sovereign will of God? What becomes of human responsibility? If we say it is determined that God saves who he's going to save and they will be saved. If he has determined to, to uh, give his love and grace and mercy upon a person, that person will irresistibly believe. They will believe. God will not lose one. They're, he's not wringing his hands because, oh my goodness, I wished that I could have saved whoever it is, some family member you're thinking of. Wish I could have saved them, but I couldn't. He's not ever wringing his hands because he failed to save anyone that he wanted to put his grace and his love and his mercy upon. All whom he has done that will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is good news. And we're going to see that it is great, great news. Like there's good news Good news doesn't cover it. It's the, it's the best news ever told that God bestows grace upon any soul in order to save them. Let's look at verses 44 and 45 a little closer. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled justly, jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So we remember from back in our study in verse 42 that a great number of Jews and converts to Judaism, they longed for Paul and Barnabas to continue to show them so that they could still hear from God's word that, that the promise of God was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Remember in verse 42, it says, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people repeatedly begged to have these things spoken to them on the next Sabbath. The leaders of the synagogue would have no doubt uh, thought themselves as a missionary of sorts. But think about it. Here they are in the synagogue. There are Gentiles and Jews alike in the synagogue, right? They are there. There are these converts to Judaism. These converts to Judaism the, the, the leaders and the Jews that were in the synagogue would have thought themselves sort of missionaries. We need to convert these, these heathen, pagan Gentiles uh, to be adherents of the law. We got to get as many of these Gentile peoples as possible to submit themselves to the Mosaic law, to the traditions of the Jews. 
Well, the previous Sabbath had been met with enthusiasm from some of the Jews and a greater number of the Jew, of the Gentiles. Their enthusiasm was they wanted to hear from the word of God about how these promises had found their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. So when we look back at verse 43, it says, Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking to them and urging them to continue in the, in the grace of God. The Gentiles, of course, they would have been a majority in this city of Antioch in Pisidia. The next Sabbath, what happens? Well, it says the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Well, it, it's a bit of hyperbole here, right? It's a bit of, a, of an exaggeration, but it, the, the point is to say that the synagogue was crowded not with Jews. It was getting overcrowded by Gentiles. Almost the whole city, he says, meaning that, that this Gentile group of people who had clamored and wanted to come and hear the word of the Lord concerning Christ had started to fill this up, which means it's sort of crowding out the Jews, right? They're, they're, they're outnumbered in their own uh, safe place, as it were, right? They're, they're starting to be outnumbered here. It was filled with Gentiles longing to hear not of law, not to hear of traditions, but to hear the word of the Lord concerning the Christ. And Paul and Barnabas, they spoke up boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. The Jews mentioned here in verse 45 are not indicative of all the Jews in the synagogue, are they? As we saw, some of the Jews in the synagogue wanted to hear the word of the Lord. But the Jews mentioned here, as it says Jews, it means really that he's referring to the official leadership of the synagogue. These missionaries of Judaism are jealous. They're jealous that these Christ-following missionaries are having greater influence, they're having greater impact than they are. So they deny the validity of Paul's proclamation that Jesus is the promised one. That the law and the prophets do indeed confirm that the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus, not in conversion to the law, not in the traditions of the synagogue. They are jealous. They are striving against them. They are saying they don't know what they're talking about, right? They're reviling them. Thinking about this, how do you and I respond when we're marginalized for our faith? How do we respond when we're despised or hated for no other reason than you claim Jesus Christ is Lord? One response, one normal response from us in the flesh is we argue. We argue our point. Maybe even we get angry. But hopefully we would respond like Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 23, He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And what do Paul and Barnabas do? They respond in the power of the Holy Spirit when they are being reviled, boldly speaking the word of God. 
Someone comes against them. No response in anger. No response to argue. No response to make your point. They just tell forth the word of God. They boldly spoke what the word of God said. It was necessary that we brought the word of God to you first. But you thrust it aside, judging yourself unworthy. Judging yourself unworthy. Unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord, the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Who is worthy? Paul here reminds them of what he spoke in verse 17. He says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. The people who are worthy are those whom the Lord God chooses. No condition within themselves makes them worthy. I think of Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's grace calls one worthy, not based on any conditions in themselves. God is unconditional in himself, you see. God doesn't need it to be, have some condition in himself changed or met. He has no need for change in himself. It is God's favor, God's sovereign choice. God's not looking for people who meet some criterion that makes them worthy of salvation. Why? Because there is none worthy in and of themselves. No one is worthy. No one is righteous. No, not one. One must be made worthy. Who is worthy? The one who is called. The one who has been granted faith. The one who has been granted repentance. God's unconditional choice by grace makes one meet the conditions of salvation. Who is worthy? Those who receive the call by grace. They are granted by grace faith. They are granted by grace repentance. Would you count yourself unworthy this morning? Who is worthy? Now I would, I would say, John Roberts, who is worthy? And John would say, it is I, because God has given me faith. God has counted me worthy. If I was counting it in among myself, I say, no, not me. But God has said, I am worthy because he has given me faith. He has granted to me repentance. He has shown mercy and love to me and granted these things to me. See, this puts the amazing back in amazing grace. Sometimes when we think of amazing grace and we sing it, it's, it's sort of a little weak if we think, if we don't think and understand that grace is the work of God from the beginning to the end. 
even in the song, that he saved a wretch like me. This is amazing grace. God has called me worthy. I know in and of myself I am not, but it is God who has called me worthy. It is God who has made me worthy. This is amazing grace because it brings all the glory to God alone. See, today, if you're hearing this and, and you will repent and you will turn from your desire for self-directed uh, self-rule, if you will turn from the pleasures of the flesh and place your trust in Jesus Christ, understand this, you have been called worthy. Today, if you cast it aside, if you cast the grace of God aside, if you cast aside the offer of Jesus Christ in the gospel, it is you yourselves who say, I am unworthy of the gift of God. And if you call yourself unworthy of the gift of God and you don't receive him by faith, you will perish in your sins and you will remain under the judgment of God. Paul here in verse 46 is declaring, this is the official stance of the Jewish leadership. The official stance of the synagogue is that they thrust aside the grace of God. They judge themselves unworthy. They thrust aside the offer of Jesus Christ for sin. They thrust it aside. This is the official statement of the synagogue. We, they're saying, reject Jesus of Nazareth as the Savior. We deny that the promise of God finds its fulfillment in Him. He is not the Lord. And in essence, they're saying this, we will not have this man rule over us. We will not have this man rule over us, as they said multiple times while Jesus was walking the earth. We will not have this man rule over us. Paul says, you've counted yourselves unworthy of eternal life. You thrust it aside. Jumping ahead for a second in verse 51, how do you respond to that? To one who, who thrusts the gospel aside that you declare, that, that they declare. Verse 51, jumping ahead a bit, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they went to Iconium. They reject Jesus Christ. They reject the message. They reject God's grace and Paul and Barnabas the judgment then is on you. They're not judging them. They're just leaving them. I'll, I'll leave you to yourself. I'll leave you to God. But I'm shaking this off of me and I'm moving on to another people that God has appointed to hear this message of salvation. He thrust it aside. And in verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul and Barnabas quote Isaiah 49.6. The message of God, the message of Christ, he's saying here a lot. He's saying this is our message. This was said of Jesus. 
Jesus is the light to the Gentiles, right? Jesus is the light that brings salvation to the end of the earth for all peoples. And now Paul and Barnabas are boldly saying something here. That we have been granted faith, we have been granted repentance, we have been called worthy of salvation, and His message is our message. We are those who bring the light of salvation to the ends of the world. We are the servants who have been called worthy. And see, you, if you want to study this out, the servant who is worthy throughout Isaiah, chapter 43, chapter 42, and so on, if you read that whole, it's, there is a servant of Israel who was called worthy. This worthy servant. And the worthy servant was supposed to be all of Israel. That was the worthy servant. The worthy servant of God was supposed to be all of Israel. And Israel failed again and again and again. But God sent his son to be true Israel. The one who is the worthy servant. And these are saying, I am his servant. I am in him. I have been made worthy of this message. God calls the servant worthy in Isaiah 49, and he has in mind the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, we've been incorporated into the worth of the Savior. His worth is in us. We are now the vehicle for the light of God's salvation to people everywhere. Since you cast it aside, we are bringing the gospel to the whosoever that God has given ears to hear. To the whosoever God has granted repentance and faith. So when I ask you, who is worthy? I want us to ultimately answer that question with Jesus Christ. Who is worthy? It is Jesus who is worthy. It is Jesus who was always obedient to the Father. It is Jesus who carried out His will perfectly, without sin, without failure. It is Jesus who, has, who is worthy. And so when I ask you, are you worthy? My worth is found where? It is found in Jesus Christ's worth. It's found in who He is. I am in Him and He is in me. As we see in John 17, right? This united, incorporated into the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who is worthy? This is the question of the ages, isn't it? Who is worthy of salvation? It's a big question. Who is worthy? How is one made worthy? Who is worthy of salvation? Who is, who is worthy of God's grace and mercy and kindness and love? Who is worthy of God's unmerited, undeserved personal favor? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? You know, it is the question of the host of heaven. The host of heaven will look at all the peoples that God has made and wonder the same question. Who is worthy? They look out upon... <laughs> 
a sinful group of people whom God has called worthy, right? Who he has incorporated into the church. Who is worthy and how are these made worthy? Who is worthy? Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And when he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The worthy one who died for our sin, who was resurrected from the dead by God, is ascended into heaven, and he is the one who is worthy. And notice that the worthy one is the one who makes everyone else who is in him worthy. As it says here, worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals for you were slain, and by your blood, by your blood, your ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It is God who makes one worthy. It is not ethnic Israel. It is not the Jews alone. It is not by race. It's not by uh, some condition that you meet in yourself. The condition is Christ's death, his blood shed, his resurrection to new life, and his ascension to the throne where he can take the title deed to the earth from the hand of God, the one who sits on the throne. He has the title deed to the earth. Who's worthy to grab this? Who is worthy? And they look all over heaven and earth and under the earth and they find no one except the lamb who was slain. And he takes it from the hand of God. He is worthy. And he has redeemed and ransomed the people and made them worthy. Christian, you have been made worthy in Christ Jesus, the faithful servant of God that was declared by the prophet Isaiah. You then are the light of the world. Why then are we as Christians in the church acting as though we are unworthy? And I'll tell you one of the ways that we act like we're unworthy. We try to remain undercover. Try to remain undercover in the world. 
We don't make ourselves known. See, in making ourselves known, who are we making known? We're making the Christ known, the Lamb who was worthy. But we want to remain undercover, sort of inconspicuous. I don't want to cause any waves or any problems. I'll just slide under the radar. That is kind of the mode of, of church these days, right? The church members just slide under the radar. Maybe even like they come into church, they come in a few minutes late so they won't have be bothered to have a conversation with somebody. And they come in and they want to hide. They even hide in the church building. And so, of course, then they hide outside the church building too. They don't make the Christ in them known. And maybe even they hide when they're hiding in the church because they know the Christ and they know the light that is in you and it will shine upon something in them they don't want to be exposed. Maybe they hide. Why do we hide? Well, remember the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put people light a lamp and then put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Just like John the, John the Apostle says that, he, that John the Baptist was not that light, but he gives testimony to the light. You and I are not that light, but the light of the gospel is shown in you and shining in you. And we, when we declare the gospel, what do we declare? We don't declare our own worth. We declare the worth of Jesus. We declare his worth. We proclaim that, that, that the grace of God has called us worthy. We live in such a way we ought to as that the glory of God is illuminated in us. Is the glory of God illuminated from us to the world? As Paul writes to the Philippian church, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. It is really to declare the grace of God in Jesus Christ that unites uh, as we unite with other believers. What are we doing when we unite with other believers and we gather as a church? We are striving side by side, contending for the faith that we might display the worth of Jesus Christ, the worth of the gospel. And he says, let our manner of life be worthy. What that means is let it be consistent, right? Let it be consistent with the truth you confess. Like you confess this truth, well, live according to it. Live in it. Live in light of it. Live understanding this. I have been made worthy by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I have been made worthy. I'm living a life of worth. Real worth. What is more worthy? What is more worthy in life? than this one thing. There's only one thing worth anything. We can think it's money. We can think it's friendship. We can think it's relationships. We can think it's marriage. We can think it's kids. We can think it's family, whatever, right? These are the important things in life. The most important thing, the very most important 
thing for any individual sitting in this room who is in Christ Jesus, the thing of infinite worth is a life that glorifies the one who saved you. The glory of God. If the glory of God is our priority, if it is the number one thing, I can guarantee you your life will be filled with joy, unspeakable joy. I didn't say it was going to be easy. Don't hear that. I'm not saying that you're not going to have troubles and problems and trials and all of those things. That, that is, the promise of God is pretty clear about that, right? In this world, there will be trouble. Jesus follows that with, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, right? That's the glory of God, right? Be of good cheer, celebrate, illuminate, magnify the glory of God, and you will have unspeakable joy, a joy that defies logic. Like, I know people who are like this. They have trial after trial after trial after trial, and you meet with them, and they love the Lord, and they, they glory in Him alone, and these people are happy and blessed. And you go, how in the world does that happen? Because their priority is the glory of God. That's their priority. God's glory over my comfort. God's glory over all things. Well, back to Acts. Let's look at 48 through the end here. And when the, the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I want to read that part of that passage again. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men in the city. They started persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy of the, and with the Holy Spirit. Luke has thoroughly and consistently shown that salvation is all of grace and is the sovereign work of God throughout the book of Acts. I'm going to try to speed through this pretty quickly, so I hope you'll track with me because there's a lot to unpack here. But I, I just want us to see that this is just not a new concept, right? This is, this is the reality of how this book is written. He is showing again and again the sovereign grace of God in salvation. Luke shows that God has ordained the means of salvation, that, that God has ordained salvation. That he, he has done so. He has done so in the means of salvation in Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. In Acts 2.23, he says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Chapter 3, verse 18, But the things which God previously announced by the mouths of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. God appointed the cross. The betrayers to his predetermined will to offer his son for the salvation of those whom he chose. 
God appointed and determined Jesus' death on a cross as the means for justice, as the means for forgiveness, as the means for love, as the means for his wrath. Further, he appointed eternal life to whosoever he determined to be saved through faith. In Acts chapter 2, verse 39, for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far away, as many, as many, as the Lord our God will call to himself. Again, in verse 41 of chapter 2, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Chapter 2, 47, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Chapter 5, verse 14, and increasingly believers in the Lord, large numbers of men and women were added to their number. Chapter 11, verse 24, and considerable numbers were added to the Lord. And in the text we're considering today, all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who is worthy? How is it determined that one is appointed to eternal life? The leaders of the synagogue thought that it was they who determined the worthiness of salvation, the worthiness of the whosoever. The ethnic Jew, of course, was worthy in their mind. Those who would conform to the tradition of the Jews might also be included, but only partially. Because even when the Gentiles would come to the temple, what would they do? They would be, they had a court of the Gentiles. They're proselytes, they believe, they've been converted to Judaism, but they're not quite allowed in. They're sort of in. They're sort of worthy, but we're a little more worthy, right? So they thought in themselves that they determined the worth of who might get salvation, those who conform. Who determines the worthy today? Is it the church who determines who is worthy of salvation? Is it the Pope? Is it you? Is it me? Is the whosoever just the smart ones? Is it the ones who in themselves have some sort of moral superiority to the rest of us? Charles Spurgeon says, Until God himself gives me the roll call of the elect, I will preach the whosoever gospel. The whosoever gospel is preached and whosoever God has appointed to eternal life will be saved. God will not lose one. He won't fail to save anyone to whom he has determined according to the counsel of his perfect will before the foundation of the world, those who belong to Jesus Christ. Who is worthy? How are lost sinners who have no worth in themselves with no desire to serve God? How are they appointed? Where does faith and repentance come from? According to Luke in the book, book of Acts, faith and repentance also come from God, who from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. It is God, according to his mercy, according to his grace, that is granted to the whosoever faith and repentance. Acts 3.16 says, and the basis, on the basis of faith in his name. Chapter 5, verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Chapter 11, verse 18, well then God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Chapter 15, verses 8 through 9. God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the same Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. 
See, that's a work of God, isn't it? Who cleanses the heart? It is God who cleanses the heart by faith. It is God who gives that faith to cleanse the heart. Chapter 16, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And finally, in chapter 18, verse 27, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. He greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Who is worthy? How is one determined to be worthy? Short answer, by grace. An act of God to help those believe. To those whom the Lord has opened their hearts. Those whom God has cleansed their hearts through faith that he has granted him. Faith in what? It's not just any sort of faith, is it? It's faith in the name of Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus that God grants repentance and forgiveness of sins. Salvation is all a work of God. All a work of God's Grace. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In the Greek, this sentence reads, as many as believed are as many as God has appointed to eternal life. As many as believed are the same number. See, this is what I want you to get. The full number of who believed is the full number of those that God had appointed to eternal life. The full number. Not one more, not one less. Those who believe were appointed to life. This Greek word means assigned, determined, set apart for eternal life. Assigned by God to receive eternal life. Determined, ordained to eternal life. The number of which God has foreordained. That number, no more from that crowd. That number, and the full number of them. Not one of them that was appointed missed it. No one was missed. God saved them all. Every one of them. As many as He had appointed to eternal life, they came to faith. Because it is a work of God, it wasn't their work. That's what I want us to understand. It's His work. So will His work fail? No. His work succeeds. The full number that he saves, they get saved. I think that's great news. I really do. No one who had been appointed to life failed to believe. You see, we have good news. No one who was appointed to believe, to believe will be lost. Jesus says himself in John chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus declares further in John 18, 9. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Salvation is all of grace. It's a work of God from beginning to end. That which the Lord has done to you, you cannot lose. You cannot lose something that wasn't yours. You can't lose something that was deposited to you. It was not yours to lose. It was not yours to gain. It was given to you as a free gift of God's grace and His love and His mercy. It was given to you. It was appointed to you. You can't lose it. I think this is amazing grace. This puts the amazing back in amazing grace. It can't be lost. This is good news. You can't fail enough to lose it. Isn't that good news? For any of you 
who know your tendencies to fail, who step in things you ought not to step in, who grab a hold of things you ought not to hold, who look at things you ought not to look at, who say things you ought not to say. Isn't it good news that God is the holder, the giver of salvation from beginning to end by grace? That you can't screw it up because it wasn't yours. You can't mess it up. Such good news. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I see, there's nothing ambivalent about uh, the response to the gospel here in this passage. There's nothing ambivalent about it whatsoever. To those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, to those who have received grace to believe and repent, they received this news in joy, in the joy of the Holy Spirit, joy in the Word of God, and the Word of God then continues to spread. The gospel continues to move forward. To those who have hardened their heart and stopped their ears, those who are blinded by sin, they stir up hatred against the carriers of the good news. And the missionary team says, I shake the dust off my feet. I leave you to God. Filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, they take the good news to the next town. If you want to reject the Lord, that's to your judgment, not to mine. I'm not placing any judgment on you. I'm just leaving you with the Word of God. I'm going to shake this off. Filled with the joy of the Lord and the Holy Spirit, I carry the Word of God to the place where He has appointed people to receive this message. And I just deliver it to them and trust Him with the whosoever. In the next town, God will appoint His people to receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to His praise and to His glory. That's our trust. Ladies and gentlemen, you are worthy because He is worthy. You are worthy because He shed His blood. He lived a sinless, perfect life. And He shed His blood for sin. And God validated His worth, didn't He? Because after three days, He said, the grave cannot hold him. He is worthy. And he raised him. And then he took that worth even further in that he, he ascended to heaven where he is ruling and reigning. The worthy one. The one who died for our sins, who made us worthy. Ladies and gentlemen, you are worthy if God has granted you repentance, and faith. So I leave you this morning with the encouragement from the Philippians. Make your manner of life display the worthiness of what's been done to you. It's been done to you by God in Christ Jesus.